if you really want to date yourself, you will admit to remembering an old situation comedy called Bewitched. Uh, it, it was on for eight seasons from the mid-60s to the early 70s, and it was on in reruns for years. And uh, the premise is pretty simple. Uh, Elizabeth Montgomery uh, played a beautiful witch named Samantha, and she was married to a normal guy named Darren, and they lived in the suburbs and where they raised their family, which eventually were two kids, a boy and a girl, and Samantha had promised Darren when they got married that she would never use her witch powers. But some complication came up every week in every episode uh, that could only be solved by Samantha. And do you remember how she would, um, I don't know, cast a spell, whatever you want to call it? How would she do it? She'd wiggle her nose, right? Elizabeth Montgomery could do it like without touching it, but everybody else has to go like this, right? She'd wiggle her nose. And I, I know that it sounds unbelievably goofy, but it was the 1960s, and we already had a show about a talking horse, and another show about a man whose, um, whose dead mother had been reincarnated in an antique automobile, okay? So, the generation younger than me, you have ALF, so it all kind of balances out. When Bewitched debuted, ABC was a distant third network. In fact, in some pretty major cities, there was not even a full-time ABC affiliate. There wasn't an ABC station. But in its first season, Bewitched finished at number two in the ratings. And, and for the next three or four years, it consistently was in the top ten, top twelve shows on television. And the, 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 the show practically single-handedly pulled ABC up to the level of NBC and CBS. Now, somebody's thinking, why in the world is he talking about a moldy old TV show from the 1960s? And somebody else is thinking, why did I get out of bed and come to church to hear him talk about a moldy old TV show? Well, we'll get back to that in just a few minutes. This summer, we're in a series of messages in the book of Galatians. We're calling it Freedom. Because the central message of the book of Galatians is freedom. And the central verse of the book of Galatians is found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, where it says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Some translation, one translation, I think the New American Standard says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, get your head around that. Christ set us free. So we could be a sunbeam shining for him? No. So that we could pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? No. So that we could work for him? No. Christ set us free so that we could be free. And we've already seen that Paul is angry and upset with the Christians in Galatia. Because they were turning away from God. They were turning away from the gospel of Jesus Christ to follow fake teachers, false teachers who told them, you've got to keep the Old Testament law and you've got to live like Jews in order to, for your faith to be valid. And in the scripture that we're going to look at today, the exact word that Paul uses in the original language to describe what's happening to the Christians in the churches in Galatia 
is the word bewitched. It means to place under one's power by magic, to charm, to cast a spell over. Paul has traveled throughout Galatia. Galatia was not one place, it was a region, and there were many cities in Galatia. And Paul had traveled all throughout the region, and he'd started churches all over the place. And he had preached the gospel. He had preached that salvation is by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the false teachers, the fake teachers, had kind of come in while he was gone. They'd come in in Paul's absence, and and they had bewitched the believers into accepting a different gospel. It was like the false teachers had come in and kind of wiggled their noses and said, here's the real truth about salvation. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to keep all these Jewish rules and regulations. And guys, you've got to be circumcised and and you you can't eat pork and you, you have to keep the Sabbath day rules as well, you know. And the Galatian believers, the bewitched believers just kind of said, oh, okay. And so in the opening verses of what we're going to look at today, at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins to rapid-fire rhetorical questions at them. Now, what is a rhetorical question? Well, if you started to answer, you don't understand what a rhetorical question is. Because a rhetorical question doesn't expect an answer. It's really kind of more of an accusation or a declaration about someone or something. Married guys? We recognize rhetorical questions because our wives are skillful at asking them. I mean, when your wife asks, why don't you listen to me? She really does not want you to answer that question. She's just telling you, you're not listening to me, right? So the next time your wife says, why don't you listen to me, please do not say, Because I don't care what you're saying. If you do, you trust me, you will have more to worry about than rhetorical questions. I guarantee you that much. Yes. Yes and amen. All right, we're going to pick up at the end of Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read a verse actually that we read last week. So if you want to turn there, if you've got a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, in your bulletin was an, an insert, a message notes page for you to take notes on. And on the back of that is the scriptures that we're going to be looking at today. They'll be up on the screen, too, as we go along, so you can follow along in the Word this morning. When this was written, in fact, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse divisions, and Galatians is a letter, right? So we're going to pick up at verse 21 in chapter 2 and read uh, right on into into chapter 3, about uh, about verse 5 here. Paul says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? And right there, there it is in the original language, the word bewitched. Some of you may have a translation that that has that word in it. Who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you? Who's put a hex on you to cause you to to stumble and to, to turn away from God, to fall away? And then he goes on. For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. 
did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, are you now trying to become perfect by your, by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Paul says, danger. Danger. There's real danger in treating grace as meaningless. And if anybody here is thinking that there's no way today as sophisticated and knowledgeable and experienced as we are that we could be spiritually bewitched, <laughs> just take a look around. Folks, Jesus called our enemy, the devil, a liar and the father of lies. His full-time job is deception is deceiving us, is, is distorting the truth and, and, and making lies look like truth. And you and I are just as susceptible to it as anyone else because the different gospel is all over the place. It's all over the place out there. Jesus plus something is taught everywhere. Jesus plus do more, try harder, be better is in sermons and in books. And my gosh, it's on Christian radio and TV. Do yourself a favor and just turn that stuff off. The different gospel is out there all over the place. That's what make this, makes this a timely message because there are too many people in the church today who treat the grace of God as meaningless. They've reverted back to religion and legalism and performing to earn God's blessing. And most of them don't even realize that a spell has been cast on. Most of them don't even realize that they've turned away from God in the process. This morning, Paul's going to show us three consequences of tr treating the grace of God as meaningless. Let's, let's take a few moments this morning and look at each one of them. Number one, Paul says, when we treat the grace of God as meaningless, we reject the cross. Well, that's awful strong, Pastor Scott, but that's exactly what Paul says. We treat the grace of God as meaningless. We reject the cross. He reminds them. Paul reminds the Galatians, I, I preach to you about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of it, as if you'd seen a, a picture of his death on the cross. And the language that Paul uses here doesn't mean that he just said in the course of you know, sharing a plan of salvation, uh, Christ died for your sins. He went into horrible detail about how Jesus suffered on the cross. He painted for them a vivid verbal picture of Jesus dying, suffering and dying on the cross. I will never forget being in church camp when I was a nine-year-old boy and hearing one of the preachers one night preach on the crucifixion of Jesus and describe it in, in very graphic terms. I, it, Today, some parent would sue him for what he said to us that night. I mean, honestly, it's, it's a legitimate concern. But he made it so vivid and so real 
when he talked about the, the crown of thorns that they jammed down on Jesus' head until the blood ran down his face. The horrible beating he received, horrific beating, beaten within an inch of his life. And he went into detail about the nails and how the Romans had become skilled at finding a place where it it was soft enough, where there was little resistance and the nails would go through the wrist and the feet, but the person would not bleed out quickly so that they would suffer longer. And I've never forgotten the portrait that he painted of Jesus on the cross that night with his words as he described the crucifixion. And I'm going to tell you something. Looking back, I believe it was that night that I realized that for the first time, it was my sin that had done that to Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that had put him there. It was the first time I realized that Jesus died for my sins. And just a few weeks later, I gave my heart to Jesus. So I can't imagine anyone ever saying, much less believing, sure, Jesus went to the cross, but that wasn't enough. If you really want to go to heaven, you need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need to follow this list of rules. You need to dress in this manner. You, need to, you can go here, but you can't go there. You can do this, but you can't do that. Nothing short of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion and the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what the Galatians were doing. They they had lost focus on the cross. Eugene Peterson translates Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 1 like this. His paraphrase is, is called the message. He says this. I love the way he says it. You crazy Galatians. And not crazy like, oh, you wacky Galatians. You're seriously crazy. You're insane. Or else someone has put a hex on you. Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. So it was like the false teachers had put a spell on them. The Galatians had fallen for the hoax. And they began to think. They began to accept. They began to live like the cross wasn't enough. One of the great American con artists was a man named George Parker. Shortly after the Brooklyn Bridge was built in 1883, Parker saw a tourist admiring it. So he decided to try to sell it to him. And the guy bought it. (laughs) And it was so easy that Parker did it again and again, and again. And over a period of almost 40 years, he averaged selling the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week. Sometimes he would sell it for as little as $50. Sometimes, at one time, he sold it for $50,000. And he had official paperwork printed up. I mean, they, they signed the deal, and he had convinced the buyers that they could make a fortune charging a toll for people to go across the bridge. And more than one time, New York City police had to stop people from building toll bridges on their bridge. Parker, he branched out from that. He didn't just sell the Brooklyn Bridge. He also sold Madison Square Garden. He sold the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He sold Grant's tomb. He pretended to be Grant's grandson and sold Grant's tomb. He was arrested for fraud three times during his life. And in 1928, he was sentenced to life in prison. And he died in prison, but not before he sold the bridge to two prisoners and one prison guard. 
how could people be so gullible? I mean, did you know the word gullible is not in the dictionary? Look it up. Even today, even today people still fall for scams, internet scams, telephone scams. Just Friday morning in the Lafayette paper I read about a scam where people have been convinced that the government is going to give you $1,000 to pay your utility bill. So people are giving up their bank information and their credit cards and their social security numbers. How can people fall for a scam like that? But listen, the most dangerous scam of all is to reject the work of Jesus on the cross and replace it with keeping rules and observing rituals. That's the most dangerous scam of all. You remember a few years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out? I remember there was some discussion among Christians because it was rated R. I mean, could we go see it or not? It was rated R for graphic violence because of its graphic portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ. But I want you to know something. That movie barely scratched the surface because the reality was much, much worse. It's so important for us to have a clear picture of the cross. It's so important for us to have a a clear understanding that that it was our sin, it was my sin that put Jesus there. And it's so important for us to have the confidence that Jesus' work on that cross is all we need. It can never be replaced by attempting to, to do more, try harder, be better. Number two, when we treat the grace of God as meaningless, we reduce the value of suffering. Paul reminds the Galatians of how much they had suffered. In the New Living Translation, Galatians 3 verse 4 says, Have you experienced so much for nothing? But the original word, the word in the original language is suffered. Have you suffered so much for nothing? Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Sacrifices were part of Judaism and the Roman pagan religion of the day. In both religions, they sacrificed. Jews sacrificed animals to the one true God to Jehovah God. The pagan religions sacrificed all kinds of things. One of their favorite things to sacrifice was food they were going to prepare to eat. So there were sacrifices in both religions. But the gospel comes along and the gospel teaches that Jesus is the only sacrifice we need. That there is no other sacrifice required. So guess what? The Christians refused to practice ritual sacrifice, which meant they were persecuted for their faith by both the Jews and the Romans. The Romans, their their pagan priests, were perfectly willing to accept Jesus as one of many gods. They were more than willing to set him up alongside Jupiter and Apollo and Diana and Cupid. But the Christians refused. They wouldn't go along with that. They said, no, there is one God, and and, and Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. They said his death is the only sacrifice, and this made them enemies of both the Jews and the pagans. And the Romans persecuted them as atheists because they refused to worship Jesus along with the pagan gods, and the Jews persecuted them as heretics who were perverting the worship of the one true God. And a lot of Christians lost their jobs, lost their homes, and much worse. In fact, when Nero was emperor of Rome, he hated Christians. 
He had them arrested and tortured by the thousands. He, he had Christians dipped in tar and tied to the trees in his garden where they would be set on fire so that he would have light to ride his horses in his garden at night. It was the cross that gave Christians strength and courage. See, their attitude was Jesus was innocent. Jesus was blameless. And they tortured him and they persecuted him and they mistreated him. So it is an honor for me to share in his sufferings. It's an honor for me to suffer with him. So now Paul is asking them, if you can earn your salvation and the cross wasn't enough, guess what that means? Your suffering means nothing. It means zero. See, God's grace does more than just save us. It sustains us when we suffer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about his thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that is. There's all kind of speculation. People have been writing about it for 2,000 years. What was his thorn in the flesh? We don't know. But we know that it was a painful condition, a painful thing that he had to go through. And he described it as a messenger from Satan sent to torment me. And he further says, I begged God three times, please take it away. Take it away. God didn't answer his prayer that way. Instead, each time God said to him, what? Anybody know? My grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. Too many of us make the mistake of thinking that we're experiencing suffering because we haven't been good enough. Because we haven't tried hard enough. We think the best way to get rid of suffering is to do more, try harder, be better. You wouldn't believe how many people I've had come to me over the years and say, Pastor, my life's a mess. And if God loves me, why is He allowing me to go through this pain? I mean, am I being punished? Have I lost my salvation? And my response is that when we accept God's offer of grace and we're born again by His Holy Spirit, We become his child. We become a child of God. And there's nothing in heaven or earth that can cause us to lose that relationship with God. Our salvation is secure and the word punish will never, ever be used in relation to us and God ever. Ever. But it is possible to fall away from grace. Later on in Galatians, Paul will say this. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, from God's grace. Now, that's a tough one, so follow me here. All right, let's think about it in the context of, of the book of Galatians. The Galatians are suffering. They're going through persecution and they're suffering. But the false teachers have tricked them into treating the grace of God as meaningless. So now what they're trying to do, they're, they're, they're trying to get through their suffering by obeying rules and following regulations. And it's not working. And when their pain and their suffering does not go away, they feel worse than ever. King size guilt laid on top of their suffering. 
So what Paul is saying to the, the bewitched believers in Galatia is, is you, you face the danger of pulling yourself away from relying on grace and going back, falling back into the trap of relying on yourselves and your rule-keeping and your legalism. Folks, nobody wants to suffer. But God can teach us so much. In suffering. I don't, I don't know about you, but I have learned much more about the heart of God and I have gone deeper in my relationship with Him during difficult times than I ever have when things were easy and things were good. That's just the way it seems to work. It's so important when we're struggling to not treat the grace of God as meaningless. Let, Let's not go back to relying on ourselves and our strength and our ability to figure it out. Let's not fall away from the place of grace. Let's stay connected to His amazing grace to get us through times of suffering. And then number three, when we treat the grace of God as meaningless, we resist the Holy Spirit. We resist the Holy Spirit. That was Paul's strongest objection to legalism. It denies the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says to them here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law? Of course not, he says. You received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Jesus Christ. How, how foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to, to make yourself perfect by your own human effort? Paul says it's crazy. It's crazy to do that. It's crazy to trade grace, to trade the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives for, for the do-it-yourself efforts of legalism. You remember the first cell phone you ever saw? I mean, you know, not on TV or movies or something, in person. When Ben was a baby, my mom worked for the phone company, and, and, and she got a bag phone. And Basically, it was just a regular telephone stuck inside this suitcase-sized bag. <laughs> I mean, that was it. And uh, a few years later, I got, I got my first cell phone. By this time, they were down to about the size and weight of a brick. Imagine a brick with a, with a plastic antenna, black plastic antenna, about that long on the end of it. And um, you had to carry it in a holster on your belt. Because you didn't have a pocket it would fit in. And all you could do with it was talk. Didn't play music. Didn't take pictures. Didn't keep a calendar. It didn't do email. There was no email. All you could do was talk on it. And a lot of the time you couldn't even do that. Well today, how many of us got smartphones? iPhone, Droid, Droid X, LG, some one of those, right? They're thin. They're light. Our smartphones, my smartphone has more computing power in it than all the computing power NASA had when it sent the men to the moon and brought them back in 1969. Plays music. I can watch a movie on it. Takes pictures. Updates my calendar wirelessly. I can check my email. I send text messages, surf the web, and oh yeah, it's a phone too. 
Now, what if somebody gave us a choice? Said you can go back to that old brick cell phone or you can keep your smartphone. I can't imagine any of us setting aside our smartphone, setting aside the iPhone, setting aside the droid, and picking up that brick and deciding that was a better choice. I mean, the only way I would make a choice like that was if I had lost my mind or somebody had put a spell on me. Hey, and it's not just cell phones. How many of you want to go back to dentistry 100 years ago? Any takers? Huh? Surgery 50 years ago. If you've had your gallbladder out and you don't mind admitting it, raise your hand. It's, it's outpatient surgery, right? You go in the morning, they do the procedure, you're home in the afternoon, a couple, three days, maybe five, six days off work, back to work. When I was in high school, it was late 70s, my mom had gallbladder surgery. She was in the hospital 10 days. She was off work for six weeks. They cut her from here to here. Anybody want to go back to that? That's why Paul is so upset and so angry with these, with these Galatians. They've set aside grace. They've set aside the smartphone and gone back to the law. They've gone back to that old technology. Hey, listen, the old phones don't even work anymore. And neither does legalism. Remember last fall? When the, the, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill to officially make In God We Trust our national motto. President Obama commented on that and he said, uh, Well, I trust in God, but God wants us to help ourselves by putting people back to work. Okay. His press secretary, Jay Carney, was later asked to clarify what the president meant by that and uh, he just kind of muddied the waters. He said, I believe the president was referring to the phrase from the Bible... God helps those who help themselves. Well, guess what, Jay Carney? That's not in the Bible. <laughs> I, some of you are looking at me like you don't believe me. I preached a whole sermon about that back in 2007 in a series called Biblical or Bogus. You might have to revisit that one of these days. It'd be fun, I think. God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible, but it is a widespread belief even among Christians. People think God needs our help. I mean, sure, God can save me, but after that, I have to help Him. I have to help Him out by doing all this stuff, by, by doing all the thou shalts and avoiding all the thou shalt nots. So please listen carefully. It is the Holy Spirit who saves us, and it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. Sanctification is nothing more than being made more and more like Jesus. And he does both of those things through the agency and the means of grace, not works, so that no man should boast. In fact, we are justified. We talked about justification last week. Our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification is all the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's all done by grace. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I used an illustration a few weeks ago. It illustrates the difference between our human performance and grace. 
by talking about the difference between a rowboat and a sailboat. You know, if you're in a rowboat and you want to get to the other side of the lake, it's pretty clear what you have to do. You better grab those oars and start paddling. And by, by, your, by your sweat and by the exertion of your strength, you will power that boat across the lake. And you know, guess what happens if you get tired? You've got to stop and rest. And when you stop rowing a boat, what happens to it? It drifts. You might end up wanting to go here and pointing here before you get your strength back enough to, to row. And so now you've got to go all the way back. But in a sailboat, all we do is raise the sail. And the wind fills it up, powers us across to the other side. And you may remember that when, we, when I use that illustration, we said that the New Testament word for spirit, pneuma, is also the New Testament word for wind. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Too many people have been bewitched into thinking it is their human effort and their human goodness that will get them to heaven. They have, they have blisters on their spiritual hands and, and their spiritual muscles are, are worn out when the truth is that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. And when we offer God our lives, the Holy Spirit, God's mighty wind, rushes in to fill our lives and moves us from death to life. If you've ever flown into or through New York City, chances are you've heard of the LaGuardia Airport. The airport is named for Fiorello LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City from 1934 to 1945. He was known as the Little Flower. He was five feet two inches tall, which made him six inches taller than my mother-in-law, but it's neither here nor there. I won't say that in the second service so we can use that recording. Um, LaGuardia was a very colorful character. He was a hands-on mayor. The newspapers went on strike one time, and LaGuardia went on, the, went on the radio and read the funny pages to the kids. And he also liked to, on occasion, slip into the municipal courtroom and take over for the judge because as chief executive of the city, he was also chief magistrate. One night, LaGuardia was presiding in court when a woman was brought before him on a charge of stealing a loaf of bread. And she explained that her daughter's husband had been, uh, had, had, had been out of work for some time and then had abandoned the family and left her with two hungry children that she could not feed. And so the woman had stolen bread for her starving grandchildren. The storekeeper refused to drop the charges. He said, Your, Your Honor, my store is in a bad neighborhood and, and the people in that neighborhood need to be taught a lesson. LaGuardia announced his verdict. He said, The law is clear. He told the woman, I, I, I find you guilty. You can either pay a $10 fine or spend 10 days in jail. And as he was pronouncing the judgment, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a $10 bill and he put it in his hat. And then he said, furthermore, in addition to paying your fine, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a person has to steal in order to survive. And they passed the hat that night. And the next morning, the newspaper reported that $47.50 was turned over to the woman, which included 50 cents from the store owner, from several petty criminals, 
and a handful of New York City policemen. That is an awesome picture, a powerful picture of the grace of God in action. See, just like that lady, we stand before the judge, guilty, caught red-handed in our sins. And God is a God of justice. He knows that the penalty has to be paid. But something incredible happens because He is full of mercy. He steps in and He gives His most precious possession, His own Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins. But grace doesn't stop there. Not only does God pay our penalty, He showers us with blessings, with salvation and sanctification and one day glorification, and that beats $47.50 any day. So please, don't let our enemy the devil or some false teacher put a spell on you. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to salvation, sanctification, glorification by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hang on to that and don't fall back into the trap of legalism. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.